Father, uh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity and this space where we can gather here this morning to hear from you. Lord, I, I'm, I'm grateful that uh, you are a God who never stops pursuing us with your love and with your grace. And when we walk through the difficult times in life, you truly are the place where we can find rest and fulfillment. And Lord, I know for me, uh, probably for many of us in this room here this morning, we have searched for that in a lot of places and in a lot of ways that promised it, but uh, it never delivered. God, you are the one that uh, always is true. You are the one that always delivers. And it truly is a life that is lived in you and for you that is a life of true joy and satisfaction. And so even as we talk about this this morning of, of generosity, I pray that we will see um, that even in this, there is a satisfaction that we cannot get uh, from anything else. And so open up our hearts and our minds to what you want to teach us. And pray that uh, as a result of our time here this morning, that uh, we'll be more like Jesus and our affection for you will grow even deeper. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been uh, watching a lot of Christmas movies at the greenhouse over the last couple of days. Uh, one of our favorite family traditions is we set up our Christmas tree, get all of our ornaments on there. We have so many ornaments. I, from, from the time I was a little boy, my dad's here this morning, from the time I was a little boy, one of our family traditions was we would always get Christmas ornaments from my parents, from grandparents. And we have so many ornaments now, because we've kind of continued that tradition with my girls. We have so many ornaments now that we have to have two trees at the greenhouse. And so we uh, have one of them set up, and we just realized this, and we got another tree that's going to be coming, and uh, we're going we're to set that up here in a couple of days. But, but what we do is we set up all of the ornaments on the tree, and then we get nice and comfortable, and we cuddle up, and we watch um, one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time, Elf. Any other Elf fans in here? All right, I'm with some of my peeps. Yes, I love that movie. It, in fact, we, we love that movie so much, like my girls um, will want to watch that in July. So it's like a little bit of Christmas in July for us. And so we did that on Friday night, and we loved it. And then yesterday morning, uh, we, re we had recorded through the Thanksgiving season some holiday classics, some Christmas classics. And so uh, we watched those with the girls yesterday morning, kind of having a lazy Saturday morning. Um, and, and I'm just curious, and I want to do this as we kind of launch into the sermon this morning. Uh, why don't you turn to the person next to you and, and just talk about what is your favorite Christmas movie? Let them know what your favorite Christmas movie is. So this is a little bit of interaction time. Go ahead, and uh, you can talk during the sermon. What is your favorite Christmas movie? I heard some Christmas Vacation. I think that's my dad's favorite Christmas movie, right? Christmas Vacation, some Elf. So last night, um, one, of, one of the guys in, in Bedford said, die hard. And did anybody else in here say die hard? Do we have, we have somebody that said die hard? Listen, listen. If, I'm in the Christmas spirit, so I'll give it to you this morning. But, but Brad, Brad, this guy that's down in Bedford who said this, he's in my life group. And so we're going to start life group out on Wednesday talking about why Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Like, just because it takes place during Christmas time and it has a couple of Christmas songs in it, it's not a Christmas movie. Maybe it is. So, uh, anyway, where, where am I? One of my favorite uh, Christmas movies of all time is, is like the 1960s, um, claymation, stop animation, 
the, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Did anybody else say that one? That was their favorite? Okay. Even my diehard man said, said that one as well. It's 1A, one 1B, one, one right? Uh, I love Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And if you remember, um, in this show, Rudolph runs away because he um, is, is you know, training, and he's, he's covering his red nose, and, and his cover falls off. And so everybody begins to start laughing at him. They didn't invite him to play any reindeer games. And so he runs away. And as he is running away, he meets an elf uh, named Hermie, who is also running away because Hermie does not want to be a toy maker. Hermie wants to be a dentist. Yes, you remember. Wonderful. Yes, Hermie wants to be a a dentist, not a toy maker. And eventually, um, these two companions, they wind up on the island of misfit toys. And the island of misfit toys is filled with unloved and unwanted toys, and uh, they are ruled by the good winged lion named King Moon Racer. Everybody remember this scene? Kind of picture that. Um, here's the theological point to this, all right? There, there is an actual tie into the sermon here. The early church uh, was a lot like this island of misfit toys. <laughs> the early church was a lot like the island of misfit toys. It was made up of a bunch of unloved, unwanted individuals who found love, they found purpose, they found grace, like they found their place in the kingdom of God. For many of them that made up the early church, they were the outcast, the downcast, the rejected of society, but they found their place in God's kingdom. It said that uh, during one of the persecutions of the early church, the prefect of Rome arrested a young deacon named Lawrence. And the prefect knew that Lawrence, one of his responsibilities was that he is, was in charge of uh, the, the, the congregation's property. Like that was his responsibility, was, was the, all of the congregation's property. And so the prefect demanded that Lawrence arranged to hand over all of the church's wealth. And to his surprise, uh, Lawrence agreed to this plan, but he asked for three days. And so they gave him three days uh, in order to get everything together uh, to give to the authorities. And after three days had passed, Lawrence went back to the prefect, surrounded by the biggest group of misfits you had ever seen in your life. He was surrounded by beggars and paupers. He was surrounded by the lame and the blind, the maimed and the outcasts, the widows and the orphans, all gathered up from the back streets of Rome. And it said that Lawrence waved his hand over this crowd of misfits, and he said, here they are, our pride, our glory, our treasure. I offer them to you. Behold, prefect, here is the wealth of the church. I love that story. You know, one of the most compelling arguments for me about Christianity is the simple fact that it survived. He had no business surviving. If you think about it, the odds were completely stacked against it. Christianity didn't have the traditional building blocks of a successful movement. Like first century Christians weren't organized. They didn't have any wealth. They didn't have any building or property. They didn't have any political or social or military power. In fact, the early Christians were known more for their poverty instead of their wealth. Most of the early believers were about as low on the social scale as you could possibly be. They, they really epitomized Jesus' teachings that the kingdom of God would belong to the least and the last and the lost. They were the ones who found it first. 
So the early church was filled with the downcast and the outcast of society, and yet somehow this movement continued to grow. In spite of their position, in spite of their lack of position, in spite of the odds being stacked against them, somehow, some way, this movement would continue to grow. And throughout the years, historians have studied uh, ways and they've tried to explain how this happened. Some of them have even committed their entire life to trying to study how this group of misfits not just survived, but thrived in those early days. And do you know what they found? Their conclusion is that while Christianity had none of the conventional strengths to start a movement, its appeal and its influence could be traced back to one unexpected source. It was their generosity. Their generosity. Like the hallmark of the first century Christians was not their wealth because they didn't have any. It wasn't their theology because even that seemed a little weird to religious people. Religious people don't really have the, the, the understanding of grace, free grace. That doesn't make sense to people who feel like they have to earn their goodness and their position before God, grace. And so their theology didn't really attract a lot of people. What set the early church apart the most from their culture was their compassion and their generosity for others. They had little, but they gave a lot. And because of that, this movement was impossible to ignore, and it was even harder to stop. And we see a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 2, when, when Luke kind of peels back the curtain and gives us a snapshot of what the early church looked like. This is what he says. You can follow along up there on the screen. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And then listen to the generosity language here. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And that doesn't mean that they shared the exact same opinions about everything or that they uh, you know, liked all of the same things. Um, or thought the exact same way. What it means when it says that they had everything in common, it means that they, they looked out for each other's best interest, that they were there for one another, that they put each other before even themselves. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And then look at the result of this type of generous community. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People were drawn to this type of community because it was different from anything that they had ever experienced before. It was a community of generosity and compassion that was so countercultural that it was impossible to miss or ignore. Because the rule of thumb throughout the Greek and the Roman world of this day it was essentially, um, I will give to you only if I can receive something in return from you. It was this culture of you scratch my back and I will scratch yours. The, the idea was that I would never do something for you unless you could do something for me. Now, fortunately, over the last 2,000 years, we've outgrown that type of thinking. <laughs> Maybe not. But this was the ruling culture of the day. And so in this type of society where, where, you know, as long as you had some kind of wealth or power or leverage, then you had the hope of receiving 
that same thing from someone else and you would never think of giving to someone unless you could receive something in return. In this type of society, quite honestly, there is no incentive for helping others who could not pay you back in some way. And so because of that, it was commonly understood that helping someone like a widow or an orphan, why would you do something like that? Because they could never repay you. They could never do anything in return. It was a waste of investment because you'd never see anything from it. And so no one did it. But then Jesus comes along. And Jesus changes everything. And Jesus walks right into the middle of this culture and he says, listen, my kingdom will be different. In Jesus' kingdom, people would give of their time and their energy and their resources. They would expect nothing in return. In Jesus' kingdom, people would give knowing that they may never receive back. In Jesus' kingdom, you would do for others what they could not do for you in return. In Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' half-brother would later say, um, religion that is pure and faultless is to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. Jesus completely flipped the cultural norms on its head, and he said, my kingdom will be different. My kingdom will be marked by generosity and love. The craziest part about all of this is that the early church actually lived this out. We see this not just in Acts chapter 2, but we see this all throughout the New Testament. They actually demonstrated this type of radical generosity and love that Jesus ushered in. The early church's generosity proved to be more powerful than any amount of money or power. And so as time went on, and several plagues began to kind of rip through the cities of that region, Christianity stood against everything else. Each time a plague would hit a city, the people would flee to escape death, and the sick were left with no one to take care of them. Now, oftentimes, the pagan priests were the first to leave town because they were the most wealthy, and they had the ability to escape before anyone else. But historians tell us that Christians stayed. Instead of looking out for themselves and fleeing with everyone else, the Christians stayed, risking their own lives, their own health, in order to meet the needs of others. And many of these Christians actually died in the process because they weren't afraid of death. And as they nursed the sick back to health, word of their generosity began to spread like wildfire, and people celebrated their generosity and compassion and love. People started worshiping their God and finding salvation and hope in Jesus, everywhere Christians went, they were known for their generosity and love, and their influence began to reshape the world. At one point in history, Emperor Julian made a push to destroy Christianity. He was tired of all this Jesus stuff. He wanted to bring back paganism. But it was actually the generosity of Christians that blocked his efforts. And in reflecting on this, this is what he wrote. Maybe you've seen this before. He said, the impious Galileans, which is another word for followers of Jesus. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Basically, he's saying we can't get enough support because the Christians do more for the pagans than the pagan leaders do. And not because they got something in return, but because this is what God's love is all about. This type of no-strings-attached generosity was so powerful that I believe it's one of the primary reasons Christianity survived the first century. Now, you guys still with me this morning? Still with me? All right. I know that's a lot of history to get to this. 
this type of generosity and compassion, it would continue to lead the church, not just in the first century, but I mean, even up to today. In his book, uh, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born, theologian and author Dr. James Kennedy writes these words. He says, despite its humble origins, the church has made more changes on earth for the good than any other movement or force in history. Despite everything and all of the odds stacked against it, the early church made more of a difference. Christianity has made more of a difference in this world than any other political movement, any other organization, any other movement or force in history. And then he goes on and he lists a couple of the highlights. He, he, he mentions things like hospitals and universities, literacy and education for the masses, civil liberties, the abolition of slavery, the elevation of women, high regard for human life and dignity. Countless benevolence and charity organizations all began out of the Christian movement. Even today, the generosity of the church continues to capture people's attention from all over the world and is a reflection of God's grace to us through Jesus. And it sends a message to this world that God so loves that he gave. God so loves that he gave. And he did it with no strings attached. And so that's why we've been spending the last few weeks talking about this. That's, that's why we've been in this series called Generosity Reimagined. It's not because we wanted something from you. Typically when a church does a generosity series, it's, it's because they want something from you. And, and that's okay because there are times and places for that, but that's not what this series has been about. That's why we said generosity reimagined. In this series, we did not want something from you. We've wanted something for you. We've wanted something for you and for others. We want to be a church that exhibits this type of radical generosity that Jesus showed when he left the riches of heaven to come live amongst us, to die the sinner's death that we deserved so that we could receive the life that was his. And at the beginning of this series, we invited you to take a card off of the generosity board. You guys remember the generosity board? We did that here at the West Campus as well, right? And we, we invite you to go pick up one of those cards. You know, kind of the point is that you can want to be generous all that you want. And sometimes our, our, our minds trick us into thinking that we're generous just because we have the desire to be generous. But we're not actually generous until we start practicing generosity, we can walk around and say, oh yeah, I'm a generous person because I want to be generous. But we're not actually start generous until we start practicing generosity. And so this generosity challenge board uh, was a way just to kind of help us take some first steps if we needed it. Like ways that we could begin to practice generosity. And I, I've got to tell you, we were absolutely blown, blown away by the response. At nearly all of our campuses, all of our services, we actually ran out of cards it was incredible, and we've heard some great stories come back as a result of people taking their challenge. It was just a, a handful of them. We took cookies to Stonebridge Health Campus and had them passed out to the residents who don't get a lot of visitors. Our loose change went to pay for three prescription medications for a lady who has been abused for too many years. Last Sunday, we had a big storm. We were driving home and all the streets were flooded due to the leaves blocking all the drains. My husband went out in the storm to clear all the drains. I had just thought about helping an elderly couple from our old neighborhood. The husband is taking care of his wife who has severe dementia. This challenge gave me the push I needed to follow through. 
we invite friends and newcomers to church and welcome them to join us for lunch at the farm. We made a donation to the Bloomington Boys and Girls Club and are also going to look into the volunteer opportunities listed in the November On Target pamphlet. I plan to make a pot of chili this week, and the morning I put it all together, I thought of our challenge to make a meal and share it with a friend. I was thinking how happy I was to open our home for a friend, and we were the ones to receive the blessing. Had a great day serving with other Sherwood Oaks folks, and the exterior of the Hannah House grounds were transformed to beautiful. I baked cookies and delivered to the Bloomington Police Department. They seemed very appreciative. Family of five came over for breakfast and are coming to church with us. This experience made me realize that I don't need to wait for a big thing to do. It's the daily, moment-by-moment small choices that I make and say and do that can also have a big impact on God's kingdom. I love those stories. We had, I had one shared with me last night um, after our, our service down in Bedford. Um, there's this lady uh, who lives in an assisted um, home, and she really wanted to do this. And quite honestly, uh, she is on this journey of finding her way back to God. She had a Catholic upbringing, um, fell away from the church like for the last several decades. Uh, but she's been coming to Sherwood Oaks Bedford pretty consistently for the last three weeks. And I love her. She is, uh, she is still rough around the edges. The sanctification process is still in full steam in her life, uh, but God's doing incredible work in her life, and she really wanted to live this out. And the card that she took, she's like, ah, there's no way that I can do this, but I'm going to do something. And so she told me that, uh, she gave me permission to share this story, that she attends uh, a group therapy twice a week. And during this time, um, she met a, a girl that kind of deals with some of the same stuff that she did. And so she said, this is my opportunity to be generous with my time. And so she went up to this young lady and she said, hey, if you ever want to talk, uh, here's my number. And she said, Sean, that was three weeks ago, and that lady has called me every bleeping night. <laughs> She's practicing it. She's doing this. I said, you know, I bet that's, I bet that's kind of rough sometimes. And she said, oh, sometimes I don't want to talk anymore. But she said, it's, it's cool to see like how some of the things that I've been through, um, now I can begin to help her and what she is struggling with. And I think that that's, like, that's it. Like, that's what we want for you through our generosity. We want for us to experience that type of joy. I love the last line that was in that video. Let me read it for you again. The person said, this experience made me realize that I don't need to wait for a big thing to do. Don't need to wait for the big thing, the extravagant, the thing that's going to capture everyone's attention. I don't need to wait for the big thing to do. It's the daily, moment by moment, small choices that I make and say and do that can also have a big impact on God's kingdom. It's not the big, it's not the extravagant. It's those small decisions that we make every single day to practice generosity that become those seeds planted that allows God to to create a bountiful harvest in someone's life. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. He says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food 
will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. See, God is the one who provides the seed and he just asks us to plant it. The seed that we sow through our generosity is the money or the time or the energy that we are investing into God's kingdom. And I can't think of a better investment to make. You see, a farmer would never look at his bags of seed, no matter how many bags of seed he has. He would never look at that and say, wow, look at how wealthy I am. That's not what he uses to measure his wealth. And if it was, then he would never put one of those seeds in the ground. The farmer knows that his wealth and his joy is in the crop that the seed produces. And the same is true with our time and our energy and our finances. God has entrusted us with these things. These are the seeds that he has given us, and now he invites us to plant those into eternity by generously giving them to others. And then Paul closes with these words in verse 11. He says, your generosity will result and thanksgiving to God. See, the point of our generosity is not that, uh, that we are celebrated. The point of our generosity, whether it be our time or our talent or our wealth that we give away, it's not that people celebrate us. It's that people celebrate God and His generosity to us through Christ. Church, the best ministry that we can offer on God's behalf to a lost and dying world is not a better production or program. It's not even a better explanation of our theology. It is to extend our generosity. It is to show people the work that God is doing in our lives to change us by the gospel. Because that's what our Heavenly Father did for us. He was generous. And He's asking us to extend that generosity to others. We see the impact that it made in the early church and their culture. Imagine if the church was once again known for this type of generosity. The generosity that was willing to give of our time, of our talent, of our energy, of our resources, willing to give of all these things generously from a heart that has been transformed by God's grace. Imagine the impact that that would make on the lives of others and the result that would happen through our faithfulness. Mark Twain once said, I'll close with this. Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Your generosity may be the very thing that helps the spiritually deaf and blind in your life see and hear God's grace clearly for the first time. I can't think of a better investment to make. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are an incredibly generous God who has given us so much. You've given us our our very breath, our life. You have entrusted to us um, our finances, our times, our ability, our energy. And Lord, I pray that we will hold loosely these things that you have given us. We won't hold tightly to them because then they begin to hold tightly onto us, but that we loosely hold them and we say, Lord, how how can my generosity make a difference in the life of someone else? 
God, I pray that as we practice generosity, not just as we have good intentions or desires to be generous, but as we really begin to practice generosity, that you will use this to, to help someone hear or see God's grace, the grace available to us through Jesus, clearly in us and for them as well. So may we live this out in response to what you have done for us through Christ. In Jesus' name I pray.